Well, good morning, and uh, my name is John. I'm one of the pastors at Jordan Valley Church, and I want to welcome you to worship as well. And if you're new, uh, we're thankful that you're here, uh, and love to get to know you uh, if I haven't yet. Um, I'd encourage you to open up to our passage. It's Exodus 13, verse 17, through 14, verse 31. We've got another kind of longer section of Scripture. Uh, Exodus 13, 17, through 14, 31. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them on the road through the Philistine country, though that was shorter. For God said, if they face war, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. So God led the people around by the desert road toward the Red Sea. The Israelites went up out of Egypt, ready for battle. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, because Joseph had made the Israelites swear an oath. He had said, God will surely come to your aid. And then you must carry my bones up with you from this place. After leaving Succoth, they camped at Etham, on the edge of the desert. By day, the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, so that they could travel by day or night. Neither the pillar of cloud by day nor the pillar of fire by night left its place in front of the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the Israelites to turn back and encamp near uh, Pi Hitheroth, between Migdal and the sea. They are to encamp by the sea directly opposite Baal Zephon. Pharaoh will think the Israelites are wandering around the desert in confusion, hemmed in by the desert. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them, but I will gain glory for myself through Pharaoh and all his armies, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. So the Israelites did this. When the king of Egypt was told that the people have fled, Pharaoh and his officials changed their mind about them and said, what have we done? We've let the Israelites go and have lost their services. So he had his chariot made ready and took his army with him. He took 600 of his best chariots along with all the other chariots of Egypt with the officers over them. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, so that he pursued the Israelites who were marching out boldly. The Egyptians, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots, horsemen and troops, pursued the Israelites and overtook them as they encamped near the sea at Pi-Hithiroth, opposite of Baal-Zephon. As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up and there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified and cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians. Would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. Moses answered the people, do not be afraid, stand firm. You will see the deliverance of the Lord will bring to you today. The Egyptians you will see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. Then the Lord said to Moses, Why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to move on. Raise your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea to divide the waters so that the Israelites can go through the sea on the dry ground. I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them and I will gain glory through Pharaoh and all his armies, through his chariots and his horsemen. The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I gain glory through Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen." And then the angel of God, who had been traveling in front of the Israelite army, withdrew and went behind them. The pillar of cloud also moved from in front and stood behind them, coming between the armies of Egypt and Israel. 
Throughout the night, the cloud brought darkness to the one side and light to the other side, so neither went near the other all night long. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and all that night the Lord drove the sea back with a strong east wind and turned it into dry land. The waters were divided, and the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. The Egyptians pursued them, and all Pharaoh's chariots and horses and horsemen followed them into the sea. During the last watch of the night, the Lord looked down from the pillar of fire and cloud the Egyptian army and threw it into confusion. He jammed the wheels of their chariots so they had difficulty driving. And the Egyptians said, let's get away from the Israelites. The Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea so the waters may flow back over the Egyptians and their chariots and horsemen. Moses stretched his hand, out his hand over the sea, and at daybreak, the sea went back to its place. The Egyptians were fleeing towards it, and the Lord swept them into the sea. The water flowed back and covered the chariots and horsemen. The entire army of Pharaoh that had followed the Israelites into the sea, not one of them survived. But the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground, with a wall of water on their right and on their left. That day the Lord saved Israel from the hand of the Egyptians. And the Israelites saw the Egyptians lying dead on the shore. And when the Israelites saw the mighty hand of the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and put their trust in him and in Moses, his servant. This is God's word. Let's pray. My Father, we ask that you would speak to us today as we look at this passage that uh, is awesome and all the, at the same time hard to even sometimes make sense of. And we have lots of questions about it. But Father, show us what you want us to see. Form our hearts as we hear your word, create in us resurrection life as we feed from your living word, God. Feed us today, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. Well, it's been said that all of life is suffering. You have moments of great joy in your life, maybe graduating or on your wedding day, uh, or the birth of your first child or your first home. But it seems more often than not that those little moments of joy break into your suffering and give you some respite, not the other way around, that most of life is joy with some suffering. No, it seems most of life is very suffering with little bits of joy. Joy almost seems to come with a package deal along with suffering. Joy, you could see as like the Trojan horse of suffering. For every good thing it brings in your life, it brings new ways in which you can lose those things that you love. A wonderful wedding, which is so everything you ever imagined, quickly erodes into a horrible marriage. Or you hold your newborn son and the joy of that is soon pierced by the sorrow of a doctor's report saying there's something wrong with his heart. Or even in the mundane, the joys of a growing family and kids, a full house, comes with the weariness of unending laundry and messy rooms. And you can't remember the last time you got a... Uh, uninterrupted nights of sleep. Growing old is like an exercise in learning how to manage new aches and pains and the realization that you can't do all the things you used to do. And it's not just that we know death is coming, but at some point in your life, you start to realize the fingers of death start to grasp your life decades before it's your time to go. And it leads to this tension in our lives. 
We want to believe there's something more than this. Yet why does life hurt so much? Wherever you go, the smell of suffering, even death, is close at hand. We're working our way through the Exodus in a a three-part series, looking at these three gifts that God gives his people. And the first gift is the gift of redemption. And in our passage, we're pressed into this dilemma. What do you do when you finally break free from a living hell, only to all of a sudden be surrounded by suffering once again? When you leave the slavery of Egypt, only to find yourself wandering in a hot desert, and now you're stuck between a deep sea and an army of chariots that's closing in fast. What do you pick, drowning or spearing? And the answer that we see in our passage, and the answer that we need, our souls need, that in our suffering, God makes a way. Even when there is no way, God makes a way. And so we're just going to walk through the story and draw out a few things and then talk about the better exodus in the second point. So we're getting back into kind of the narrative of the exodus after spending a number of weeks as the last chapters really dive into the theology and practice of the Passover. But now the people are finally walking out of the front door of Egypt. Their heads are held high. They are slaves turned conquerors, right? They think, okay, it's all downhill from here. We've made it out of Egypt. The best is yet to come. But it won't last long. And God knows how fragile, how fickle the Israelites' feelings are. So God doesn't lead them the most direct way from Egypt to their new promised land, kind of following along the coast of the Mediterranean. Instead, though, because that region was occupied by the Philistines, who had good, strong armies, God leads them south, a longer route, to avoid those armies. Now, this kind of leads to the question, though, well, why doesn't God just do to the Philistines what he did to all the Egyptians? And the answer is fairly simple, because God doesn't indiscriminately kill people. Now, this answer feels a little bit surprising, given all of the killing that's gone on so far in these preceding passages. But if you look closely through the Bible, you see that God is very deliberate in his use of violence. That it is when it's in the service of redemption and rescue, he will wield the sword for the goal of entering, uh, leading us into a place where there is no more violence. God uses violence to bring an end to violence. But to make sure they don't make any wrong turns on this long trek, God kind of gives them, you know, an ancient GPS system, a, a pillar of cloud during the day and a fire at night. So just follow the cloud, right? And that's where you want to go. And then God says, all right, you've been wandering this way. Now I want you to essentially make a U-turn. It's going to look like you're lost, but it's deliberate. Because God wants to bring the final blow to the Egyptians, and in particular, Pharaoh, so that they cannot torment the Israelites ever again. In the days after Israel leaves, suddenly Pharaoh and his advisors feel remorse. Maybe it's like uh, when your wife leaves for a weekend trip, And you realize all these little things around the house that she just does in the background that you didn't realize even happened, right? Like, oh, the toilet paper doesn't restock itself, or the dishes don't magically get clean if you leave them in the sink for long enough, or the dog's poop doesn't evaporate in the hot sun, right? And they realize, shoot, what are we going to do? Verse 5, what have we done? We have let the Israelites go and have lost their services. So Pharaoh says, we got to get them back. He readies the chariots, which will easily catch up to a wandering parade of people. 
And as they're pursuing them, they probably have scouts that are sweeping the desert to figure out, all right, where have the Israelites gone? Looking for tracks. Where are they headed? And these scouts report back what they see. Oh, the Israelites are wandering in circles. They're lost. This is our opportunity. So the chariots all assemble and they close in on the Israelites and the Israelites see the dust out on the horizon and they know something's bad is coming and then they see it. Egyptian chariots headed right towards them. We're going to die. Moses, did you not think there were enough graves for us in Egypt? I love how the New Living Translation renders the last bit. It's better to be a slave in Egypt than a corpse in the wilderness. It doesn't take long for suffering to break into their joy. They spent 400 some years in Egypt. They finally get out and they only make it a few days before their bubble bursts. And they they freak out again and think this is the end. And they've been following God in this. He's made it very clear where they should go. He was their GPS. And now they've been led to a sea on one side and an army on the other. God has led them to a dead end. What do you do? When God pulls you out of your former life, he rescues you, only to see it all on the verge of falling apart a few days later. What do you do when following God seems to bring more suffering into your life than take it away? And you, we all live in that space where it seems like for every little ray of sunshine, the clouds quickly cover it over and bring more sadness or darkness. You can't seem to make it a week or even a weekend without a new storm coming in. But Moses replies, don't be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You only need to be still. Moses encourages them to see the bigger picture. God will fight for you. He will deliver you just like he did in Egypt. Don't forget the past. But it's more. God is saying, Moses is saying, this is the last time you'll be bothered by the Egyptians. God's brought you to what looks like a dead end, not to end you, but to bring an end to those people that have been tormenting you. The Lord will fight for you. You only need to be still. And don't we bring so many troubles on ourselves because we don't trust God and cannot be still in the midst of suffering or fear? Instead of trusting that God has led us to this place, we're trying to play God and manage our own situation. What do you do when things seem to start unwinding in your life? Are you still and trusting God's direction, or are you running around trying to fix it all? When the things that you've dreamed for are threatened, do you trust God's guidance and that he will carry you through even the dark areas? Or are you busy just trying to hold everything together so you don't lose your dreams? Now you might say, but look at the next verse. God says to Moses, why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to move on. God's response is kind of surprising. Moses just gave this you know, very lofty spiritual talk about being still and trusting God. But God doesn't thank Moses. He seems like the ultimate pragmatist. Why are you standing there whining? Get walking. <laughs> don't just stand there and let him come. But we've got to remember to make sense of this. Moses' role as an intercessor, meaning that he is interceding between God and the people, that Moses so represents the Israelites to God that their complaining becomes his complaining, 
that their lack of faith becomes Moses' lack of faith in God's sight. So that when God responds to Moses, he's referring to the Israelites' worry and complaining. But God has so attached Moses to the people that he represents that he speaks to Moses as if their lack of faith was his. Now, we cannot miss the foreshadowing here of the greater Moses, Jesus, who does that very thing for you when you put your faith in him. Jesus is the ultimate intercessor who takes your complaining and says, it's mine, Father. He takes your sin and says, it's mine. He takes your lack of faith and says, it's mine. So that when you fail, God sees your failure as Jesus's. And you get Jesus' perfect record. Now, I also think we don't, we don't need to see Moses' instructions to be still as antithetical to God's instructions to get a move on. Faith doesn't mean just sitting around and doing nothing, right? twiddling your thumbs, oh, God's going to do something here. But notice the act of faithfulness for the Israelites are simple things that will not save them. Right? Get, walking is not going to save them from an incoming chariot army. But it will, what it will do is show they trust God. They, are running, they aren't running around busily trying to, okay, we need to you know, dig a tunnel under the Red Sea to see if we can get out of here. They're simply getting up to walk and God, trusting that God will do the heavy lifting. And as we read on, we see actually that the Israelites need to be still for that night. Because God in this miraculous way is going to use this wind to blow the sea open, creating away for them, and they had to wait through the long hours of that night. And I wonder if that night of total darkness maybe reminded Pharaoh of the last time he experienced a darkness like that in the plague of darkness, the ninth plague, right before the death of the firstborn. Perhaps God was giving Pharaoh a warning. You pursue them after the darkness, and it's not going to end well for you. But Pharaoh's heart is petrified. No reason is going to change him. No warning will alter his course. His ego will not turn back, will not let him turn back. And so with eyes wide open, he marches straight to his doom. Early that morning, the break of day, the Israelites saw what they hadn't had faith to see. God had made a way. God blew a hole out of the back of this dead end. Two walls of water and a dry path in the middle of it. And the Egyptians followed, well, don't let him get away. And yet suddenly the chariot's strength, their wheels, becomes their critical vulnerability. We don't know if maybe God made mud and they got stuck in the mud. For some reason, the wheels jammed up, they can't steer and they can't turn them. They're stuck. And it gives enough time for the Israelites to make it through to the other side. And then at daybreak, God tells Moses, hold your staff over the sea. And the walls of water come crashing down and sweep the army away. God brought an end to those who had tormented them for so long. The bullies would never come back. The abusers would never touch them again. And now they're standing on the other side of this sea, their first step into a new beginning. A deep ocean separated them from this land of death as they looked forward to a better future. But as you know, suffering always breaks in. The Egyptians might be gone, but other oppressors would come in and take their place. And we'll discover here shortly, the Israelites don't just 
carry the plunder of the Egyptians, they carry some of the sin of the Egyptians as well. And Israel, through their own sin, would start to look a lot more like Egypt than God's people. The Egyptians might be dead, but the ghosts of Egypt still haunted them. Suffering always breaks in. You get through one trial, think, okay, we made it, only to see a new set of waves on the horizon. You wonder, what's the hope? Why do things never get better? And that's what we're going to answer here in our next point, a better exodus. Now, kind of the, the, one of the difficulties in this story is we don't know what water, body of water, the Israelites crossed. And we have all kinds of questions tied to it, like, how did God do this, right? This seems kind of unbelievable. Like, how did this work? And traditionally, people have thought that it was somewhere along the Gulf of Suez, which today now feeds into the Suez Canal, which you know, was kind of famous at the beginning of the year for the, the cargo ship that was stuck. Uh, maybe God was doing a you know, second exodus, <laughs> making the, the land dry, right? Another option, though, is that there's a bunch of lakes that are kind of near the Suez Canal that actually, I think, form, will form parts of the Suez Canal now, that maybe they crossed over one of those lakes. And actually, the translation that probably we're all most familiar with, Red Sea, isn't the best translation. I would guess that every one of your Bibles has a little footnote under it that says, Reed Sea. In Hebrew, it's Yam Suf. Now, one of the difficulties with a reed sea, though, is reeds don't grow in salt water, which adds some more mystery to where exactly this happened. And in fact, the com common knowledge of the, uh, the Red Sea uh, is a translation that didn't appear until the Septuagint, which was written over a thousand years after these events, and it was a Greek translation of the Old Testament, but for kind of the interesting way that Bible translations work, that kind of stuck. And so Yamsuf gets translated as Red Sea. But the most important thing here isn't the mechanics or where or how, but really, I think Scripture will show us the most important thing to take up from this section. Let's look at some other Scripture passages that talk about this event. Exodus 23:31. God says, I will establish your borders from the Red Sea to the Mediterranean Sea and from the desert to the Euphrates River, I will give into your hands the people who live in the land, and you will drive them out before you. So here the Red Sea marks one of the, the borders of Israel's new home. This fits with what we see here. Crossing the Red Sea, it represents a new beginning, a new future for them. It gets more interesting when we turn to some of the poetic books. Psalm 106, verse 9. He, God, rebuked the Red Sea, and it dried up. He led them through the depths as through a desert. Here, we start to get an interesting mixing of the story of the Exodus with language of the story of creation from Genesis 1 and 2. And the word here for depths, where it said uh, back there, he rebuked the Red Sea, he led them through the depths as through a desert. Uh, that word, to hone, is often used in a very rich way. It's a rich word. The, the Lexham Bible Dictionary says, it is often used for the depths of an ocean or with reference to a great and destructive amount of water. Tahon may refer to the chaotic primeval ocean, Genesis 1-2, to one of the sources of water in the great flood, Genesis 7-11, or to waters that bring death and destruction, Exodus 15-5, in Ezekiel 26, 19. Now that reference to Exodus 15, 5, which is just in the next passage, 
It says, the best of Pharaoh's armies are drowned in the Red Sea. The deep waters have covered them. They sank to the depths like a stone. Here, it's talking about something way more than just crossing along, you know, making it through some water. This story is about something much bigger. That when we look at how Scripture thinks about the Exodus, the Red Sea crossing, it focuses less on the, the where and the how and more on the why. That when we looked at the ninth plague, it was probably a month or so ago, I, I mentioned how one of the plagues we see, it's almost like playing the creation story in reverse. That the ninth plague is the plague of darkness, which is how the earth was before the first day of creation, and God said, let there be light. In Egypt, it was an unwinding of creation. And right before that passage where God says, let there be light, is Genesis 1-2. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. The earth was covered in this thing called the deep, which in Exodus 15 is also described as what the Israelites passed through and what covered the Egyptians. And where does Pharaoh's army end up? In the deep. It's almost like they become uncreated. They dissolve back into the waters of pre-creation. See, God is making a new world for the Israelites where their oppressors are no more. And with that creation narrative in the back of our mind, listen to Psalm 106 again. He rebuked the Red Sea and it dried up. He led them through the depths as through a desert. There are parallels to Genesis 1.9. And God said, let the water under the sky be gathered to one place and let dry ground appear. Sounds similar to the Exodus. The psalmist is imagining the Exodus as like a second creation story. That God draws back the waters of the deep and dry ground appears for his people to walk on. Let's bring in one more passage, Isaiah 51, 9 and 10. Was it not you who cut Rahab to pieces, who pierced that monster through? Now, Rahab was a, a god of the ancient Near East who was depicted as a sea monster. She was perhaps like the god of the deep. And many other ancient creation stories talk about subduing her so that dry land can appear and people can live on it instead of being destroyed by this chaotic ocean. And Isaiah 51 is retelling creation in terms of God subduing, cutting into pieces what was considered one of the most powerful forces back then. This great God, Rahab, the uncontrollable sea, the God of the deep, maybe we could even say the God of the underworld. But then the next verse in Isaiah 51, so it's talking about creation, cutting up the God of the deep, we think, but then it says, was it not you who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, who made a road in the depths of the sea so that the redeemed might cross over it? We see here again a blending of the stories of creation and exodus. The exodus is more than just a cool miracle that you're, when you're a kid, it's like, man, that's pretty sweet. I wonder how that worked. The Exodus is actually telling a story that shows us what God's big story is, of what he's doing in all of the world, that he is going to redeem his people from evil. 
He will lock that evil up in the bottom of the sea, and he will lead his people on to a new creation where suffering is a distant memory. But that new creation in this exodus didn't go far enough. Israel was out of Egypt, but Egypt wasn't out of them. Picking up again with Isaiah 51. Was it not you who dried up the sea, the great waters of the deep, who made a road in the depths of the sea so that the redeemed might cross over? Those the Lord has rescued will return. They will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them. And sorrow and sighing will flee away. So Isaiah now is saying, taking the language of creation, wedding it to what happened in the Exodus, and then saying, but guess what? There is coming a better Exodus where you will be overtaken with joy and sorrow and sighing will never return. That God's people look forward to that greater Exodus. And so listen to Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 10, starting at the beginning of the chapter. For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud and that they passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Paul here is saying that Israel's crossing of the Red Sea was a baptism. But it was only a baptism into Moses. He goes on to say, but brothers and sisters, we are baptized into Christ. So that in Romans 6, he writes, Do you not know that all of us were baptized into Christ? That when we were baptized into Christ, we were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. Okay, when we kind of bring these things together, this verse in Romans 6, it's, not talking primarily about how baptism is, you know, being submerged in in water. No, in in fact, when Paul thinks of baptism, the Israelites' baptism, they didn't even get wet in it, right? They just walked through the water. But he's saying baptism fundamentally, whether it's walking through the water or being submerged in it or whatever, baptism is about the transformation of your life from the old into a new beginning. And your baptism into Christ is better because it did what the Red Sea couldn't. That though the sea buried the Egyptians, the Israelites still carried with them the remnants of Egypt, of sin. And it would follow them wherever they go. So even as they go into this new promised land, before long, it starts to look like Egypt. And this is the tension of so much of the Bible. God wants to make a holy home for his people. But how does he make this perfect forever home without them ruining it once again? Without sin breaking in, without suffering breaking in. Because you let them go through that baptism and they carry even just a tiny bit of sin, right? Let's pick the one million best people that ever lived. But that tiny bit of sin will soon spread like a highly contagious virus and everything will be destroyed. So we can't even let the least amount of sin in. So then you say, okay, well, we're just going to say only the perfect can come in. But that means everyone will be drowned in the sea and no one will make it through. And so you see what Paul's point is in Romans 6. The cross and his death was when Jesus was swept away by the Red Sea. When the deep came down on him 
and sunk him into the underworld, we could say. He suffered the judgment of God, and while he was doing that, guess what? He held you. That when you trust him, he was holding you as the waves overtook him. And Jesus would die in the deep with you in his arms. But because we were held by Jesus, three days later, when it looked like the sea had won, Jesus would walk out from the banks of the shore, carrying us, and breathe a new life into us by his Spirit. Your baptism is that when you pass through the Red Sea, into a new life, a new beginning, that you have started the first step of your new life, where you will one day be free from sin and suffering. And that's our hope. We are in one sense in this tension where we have tasted the first beginning of the Exodus, but it's not yet done. But one day, the better Exodus will be complete, and then you will find your home in a new promised land where there is no remnant of sin or suffering, and it cannot be messed up. So let's wrap up by bringing one more thing in. Go back to verse 19 of our passage. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, because Joseph had made the Israelites swear an oath. He had said, God will surely come to your aid, and then you must carry my bones up with you from this place. What do you do when you've been promised God's deliverance, but you die waiting for it? What do you do when all you can see is an ever-darkening suffering around you? What do you do when you die waiting for God to rescue you? Hebrews 11.22, by faith, Joseph, when his end was near, spoke about the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt and gave instructions concerning the burial of his bones. You look forward in faith to the final exodus. And even if suffering is so chipped away at your life that all you are is skin and bones, that you can't hold any longer and the fingers of death pull you under, God will make a way when there is no way. God will make you whole. What do you do when you struggle with the same sins every day and it feels like you're never making any progress and you keep screwing up and you feel like you're a slave to your worst instincts? You long for that final exodus where Jesus has made you holy inside and out. What do you do when it seems like there's new suffering around every corner and you can't get a break? You look forward to that day when it's not Pharaoh and his armies that have been swept into the sea, but Revelation 20, verse 10. Then the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire, into the sea, we could say. The book of Exodus, it starts with a story of water. If you remember all the way back then, Israelite sons being thrown into the waters. And their time in Egypt ends with water as well. Them facing the water, their certain doom, what they had feared so long, what would only trigger for them all the memories of all their children that had died in the deep waters of the Nile. But God makes a way right through the middle of what they feared, and they emerge from the deep into a new life and a new future. And that is what God is doing for his people. 
That is the journey we are on as Jordan Valley Church and all Christians are on. God has made a way and he will bring us into resurrection life. Revelation 21, verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth, this life, had passed away. And this little detail we have to miss. And there was no longer any sea. You see the significance? There's no more evil, no more suffering, no more chaos. It's all gone. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. Let's pray. Father, we need this so badly. Help us to see what you are doing, Father, that even in our own lives, when it feels like we are stuck between when suffering is in front of us and suffering is behind us, that we would see that you make a way. And even in the long slog of life that has so much hurt and disappointment and pain, that we would look through the sea to know where we are headed, a world that cannot be messed up again, where we will live in harmony with you and all of your people. And the suffering will be such a distant memory. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.